You know, when we were planning out BP's sabbatical and thinking through that and, and, and the time to be away and thinking about what are some of the things we want to do for Seven Hills Fellowship, you might remember the fact that some of the money from the grant goes to the church to be able to bring people in and to have conversations. And uh, we've been doing a number of different things. We've had a number of guests who've come here. As we were thinking through and selecting the various guests uh, who would be coming in to share with us, there's one guy I wanted to make sure that we could invite to come, and he graciously agreed to come. His name is Hugh Barlett. He's with us here this morning. Hugh uh, and Judy are from St. Louis. Uh, they are in the Cheshirefield Presbyterian Church, which is in the, outside of St. Louis. And um, you probably know that Janet and I lived in St. Louis for about 10 years before we were able to come to Rome, Georgia. And um, Hugh was, for me, uh, during that time in St. Louis, more than just a friend. He was a, one of the guys I would go to when I really needed to process things in my life or process things that were going on uh, in, in the community in which I was involved. He was one of those guys who was a confidant. You know, in, in all of our lives, we have lots of allies, people that we're alongside of, but not a lot of people we can share with and, and openly discuss things with. And he was one of those guys for me. And one of the reasons was because he was trustworthy in his character. And, and another reason is because he's just wise and deeply insightful. And you can see that in the way he's loved his family. You can see that in the way he's loved his church over the years and seeing what's happened as he came into a church that was deeply struggling for many, many years and came in and over a period of time saw health and growth develop in that congregation. So I really was excited about the fact that Hugh and Judy were willing to come and be with us today. And Hugh, I'm thrilled to have you here and it's exciting. I'm just looking forward to hearing you, brother. getting that there we go I think we're starting to get some sound thank you I appreciate uh, being here this morning at Seven Hills Fellowship what a privilege it's been just to been here yesterday arrived and appreciate the southern hospitality along with the southern humidity I uh, felt right at home living in St. Louis we start the south kind of starts in St. Louis with the humidity. But one of the most glorious things happened yesterday. Judy and I are thinking about moving here to Rome after having one of these popsicles right down on Broad Street. It really would be something that this town needs to promote and advertise. You may grow to over a million people if you do it, but we, after our great dinner, we had a great time together uh, enjoying those popsicles together. This morning, we're turning to some of the thoughts about one thing. What is the one thing? And that's a, that's a challenging topic. When Bob asked me to pick one thing, one lesson I would like to leave with you about my life, my life in ministry, my life in Christ, I really have to go back to just the very beginning of my spiritual life. I was 13 years old, living in middle-class America, which in America means that 70 to 80% of Americans self-describe themselves as middle class. That's statistically impossible, but that's how we look at ourselves. And I grew up in suburban middle class Chicago. I was one of six children. And so what this means for us is that we're overfed. It means we're educationally overachievers. It means emotionally we're overlooked. 
What does that mean? It means that we're able in America to find a place to be productive. Materially, we find a place where we can produce and make a living. But it also means in this last generation, last two generations, it means that we don't really know where we belong. We're uncertain and insecure in that. And I was that kind of kid. I was doing well in school, doing well in sports, but I didn't know where I belong. And it was when I was 13 years old, to a family member, growing up in a a family that never went to church, she began to share the gospel with me. And Jesus Christ entered my life. We're looking at this theme, in one sense, of every day in in eternity. It was truly God's eternal, powerful presence in Jesus entering my life. At 13 years old, I remember laying in my bed, looking at the ceiling, but looking in faith for the very first time. And my life was literally changed. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know where to go. But I knew for the first time that I was loved and that Christ was the Lord and Savior of my life. And I barely knew what those words meant, but it began a journey in which I have been loved and led by Jesus Christ. And so I stand here today celebrating that many years ago, reality. God led me into ministry and two verses that have just meant a lot to me throughout my life, but also more recently come from Philippians chapter 3 verse 8, and then Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. This is the Philippians 3, 8 passage. Let me read it for you. It says, Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him. Let me just go forward to one verse, the next slide, if we can do that. It says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. The Apostle Paul wrote from a prison these words in chapter 3, verse 8, and chapter 4, verse 8, and I believe that this morning God wants to help us understand the beauty of and the glory of what it means to know Him. Let's think about it. Let's pray together. Our gracious God, we thank You for the privilege, the absolute privilege of knowing You. We thank You that before we found You, You found us. Whether it was in a small town, in a suburb, in a city, in another nation, another land, in another time, in another place. Lord Jesus, You love and pursue Your people. And we celebrate that today. We thank you for the glory and the surpassing value of knowing you, Jesus, as our Lord. Pray in Christ's name. Amen. Albert Einstein said the most profound question in all the universe is this question. Is this a friendly universe? I've heard that phrase years ago and it's only recently that I've begun to understand it maybe in a a more powerful personal way as Albert Einstein began to study and think mathematically and personally about this world in which he lived the two words that jump out of this phrase friendly and universe are, are really significant he's asking in the midst of all this 
apparent viciousness that we see, this violence in both the chemical, physical, and personal world. Is at the core of life a friendly, accepting, loving being? Is there someone or something that truly will embrace us as human beings? Are we simply accidents or aliens in the environments in which we live? And then the word universe. The word universe. To Einstein and to all of us living in this century, in the century after that century, we have this sense of the vastness, the overwhelming vastness of not only outer space, but inner space. We are small. And we struggle to get our arms around all that exists in some meaningful and coherent way. Is this a friendly universe? We wrestle with those two sides of that question. Is there someone who will embrace us? Is there some way for us to take hold of all that we experience, see, and even can't see? And the beauty of the gospel, the beauty of the gospel is that Jesus Christ frees us to live both a holy and a whole life. That the two fundamental aspects of that question are answered in Jesus. The two passages I read answer that one profound question. Is this a friendly universe? In Jesus Christ it is. Knowing Jesus Christ becomes the way in which we receive the embrace of the Father. And one who will take our hand and lead us into this beautiful, although challenging world. Knowing Christ. I'm a big fan of movies. Now this is not the feel-good movie of the year or decade. Um, the Coen brothers did a movie called No Country for Old Men. It's a, it's a brutal movie that somehow is beautiful as well, set in South Texas with one of my favorite actors, Tommy Lee Jones. And if I could do a good southern Texas accent, it would be more profound what I'm about to tell you. But in that movie, he comes to grips with the reality that his life in the midst of law enforcement as a South Texas sheriff as he fights against the very personification of evil he comes to two conclusions in a monologue later a dialogue i should say later in the movie with a relative he says in a very tragic way i thought when i got older god would just come into my life but i guess i don't blame him You see, Tommy Lee Jones is longing for that embrace. In the midst of all that he's seen, he's longing for that embrace. Later, or earlier, actually, just a scene or two before, in face-to-face with this vicious criminal, he then says to another individual, I feel overmatched. He feels like he can't get his arms around as an instrument of justice, all the injustice and evil that he sees in the world around him. And so really, that's an echoing of Einstein's very question. Do we live in a friendly universe? Is there someone who will embrace us? Is there a way that we can take hold of the life that's before us? Well, look at Philippians 3, verse 8 with me. And I believe there are two things we learn, that we can rest in Jesus and His righteousness. You see, the way that we discover God's embrace is found for us right here in this passage. Do you see it? It says, indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth 
of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. What's offered to us in this unbelievable passage. Paul, who was a religious man, says that actually it's not about religion. It's not about all the spiritual accomplishments of going to this Sunday school or doing these various rituals that while in themselves are not bad, they're not enough. Paul is saying there is a personal relationship with not only a man who is God who entered into history, but one who actually can enter into our very lives. Jesus Christ, my Lord. And that's surpassing all value. And the phrase that I should have underlined right at the end is even more powerful to me as I go on. It's the concept, the reality of this relationship that not only do we find Christ, but even before we find Christ, He finds us. Do you see that in the last part? He talks about gaining Christ and being found in Him. This is gospel grammar. This is the reality that God is the active agent who finds us. We're found in Him. Your place in life, your place of rest in the presence of a perfect and holy God, the uneasiness of your conscience, the insecurity of your place and acceptance in life, all of these are answered in being found in Him. Found in Him. And this is why we describe, and that's why the Protestant Reformation has described faith as receiving and resting. Isn't that a great image? Receiving and resting in Christ Jesus alone as He has offered to us in the Gospel. Amazing. So what this means is that God wants and desires to embrace us. But that can be one of the hardest things for us to experience. Today's Father's Day, and I have three children and uh, I won't be able to today, distance and geography, even if I was in St. Louis, I wouldn't have any of my children in town. They've just grown in, in college and other, just out of college. And so hugging my children won't happen today, but I've just been so blessed by the love that my children, just as Bob described. And I didn't grow up in a family. I grew up with a father who worked hard, who provided for his family, who was a solid, moral example of what it meant to be a good man but my father was not expressive pretty much a man of his generation he wasn't expressive he wasn't able to say i love you and when we would greet one another as a son throughout my life it was a handshake and not a hug and so somewhere along the line as my wife and i moved through marriage five years ten years it became clear to me that i needed to discover in christ an emotional life I need to understand what it was like to not only receive affection, but give affection. Something I believed in the gospel, but something I didn't really totally understand relationally with others. And so I began to not only think about my relation with my wife, but I began to think about my relation with my father. And so I began to realize as I prayed, I need to hug my father. I need to eventually be able to say to my father, I love you. That was going to be a little harder. But I needed when we... We greeted one another. We didn't live in the same town. And so when I went to visit her the next time, I began to work up the arm. You ever seen that before where you, you kind of, men do this, it's the, the two-handed grasp. You know, you grab and you do that. So when I came into town, I kind of did a two-hander. I got on the arm and I kind of pulled him forward a little bit. And I kind of, you know, our shoulders almost touched. It wasn't really a hug, but we're moving there. But eventually after another visit, I remember the place. We were actually meeting in a hotel. The families were meeting together in a sort of reunion context. And I just came to the place where I said, Dad, I'll miss you. 
and I put my arms around him. Didn't ask, just went for it. And I remember what that was like. The music played. No, it didn't do that, in fact. What happened was I hugged my father, and my father did something shocking to me. He actually hugged me back. And here's why I tell you the story. Because what happened to my heart was this. My father hugged me, and I got uncomfortable. I, I kind of pulled back. It wasn't obvious, perhaps, to him. But I felt like, okay, this is a little awkward. But it wasn't funny. It was unsettling. You see, what had happened was I had always thought that embracing my father was something I longed for. It was. But I discovered it wasn't something that was easy for me. I find the same thing in the gospel. What could be easier than Jesus saying he loves you, that he loves you unconditionally, that he lived his life, died on the cross, and rose again so that you might have life? He comes with nail-scarred hands to embrace you. And all of us say, who would not want that? And yet, as human beings deep down, our independence and our fear and insecurity and reluctance to intimacy means that when Christ embraces us, many of us are like this. And part of what Christ has to do is to enable us throughout our lives to finally believe what we really believed when we said we believe in Jesus, that his love is enough. Paul begins there, resting. But you notice this passage goes on to a second point, relinquishing. You see, it's interesting. We rest in Christ, we're found in him, but then there's this other side of life. It's really the beautiful and the challenging part of living in Christ. Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior, loves us enough to teach us to let go, to relinquish. Do you see what Paul says? He said, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. This sounds like such a traumatic, and it does feel this way experientially to us, as followers of Christ. What Paul's saying is that God, in his beautiful, powerful relationship with us, in order for us to understand and experience his unending, never-ending love, he's going to ask us to relinquish everything else as secondary to the love we receive from Christ and the love we give from Christ. This is part of our fear in this relationship. But Paul says he has counted everything. It begins with a perspective. I'm going to realize that every bad thing in my life needs to go out the door. But even all the good things need to go in the back seat compared to knowing Jesus. And this is a lifelong process of recognizing and experiencing that. It's something we decide and it's something God designs in our life. We go through situation after situation where God strips us down. It may be something you've discovered early in your life. Perhaps it's something, but I guarantee you by the time you've moved through your life, you have understood what Paul says, for his sake I have suffered the loss of all things. Paul has sitting in prison right now, and he's lost his prestige. He used to be a respected Jewish leader. He's now lost that position and that prestige. He no longer pastors. He's, he's unable. He's locked in a prison. He's lost that ability to be a pastor, evangelist, church planner. He has lost his freedom. Sometimes it seems like he's chained to another person, a guard, sometimes to the wall. He can't go where he wants to go and do what he wants to do. He suffered the loss, Paul has, but God does that to all of his children. 
He calls us to lose all those secondary things that all seem like first things in order that we might prize and recognize as precious Jesus, the surpassing value, the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus as Lord. And so I'm convinced that this is what God this is what God is going to do in our life. It's a little bit like your marriage day, your wedding day. Again, it's a while for us, Judy and I, but we've been through a couple weddings with our daughters just in the last few years. And there's this crazy, there's nothing like a wedding, is there? It's one of the most amazing, but just frantic times. And it's amazing to watch when you go into all this planning and things don't work out. Before the wedding, you're trying to make sure everything goes right. You're trying to make sure the dress looks right and everybody else is dressed beautifully and handsomely. You're, you're trying to make all the little kids perform in the beautiful ways and for the flowers to just arrive on everything, for the room, for the message, for the worship, for the reception. You want everything to go right. But in the end, my daughters come through and this didn't go right. And this didn't go right. And this didn't go right. But in the end, they all say, it, it doesn't matter. The man that I love, the one that I love, this is all rubbish compared. Do you see what Paul's saying? In the end, it's about this man that I love. Nothing else really mattered in the day. And so we come to the phrase, I think, that I want to use to to sum up this message. It's the first part that I've just kind of spoken of right now. Philippians 3.8 is saying to us this, nothing matters except knowing Christ. When Jesus helps us to understand that nothing else besides knowing Christ is the bedrock of everything in our life, when we recognize that we can rest and relinquish in knowing Him, nothing matters. There's a freedom to that. There's a freedom for this church. There's a freedom for us individually to come to that place that nothing matters except Christ. But here's where the second half, the second part of my message pivots. You see the second phrase? Everything matters because of knowing Christ. This is what happens to us. Philippians 3.8 strips us down individually and corporately to a place where we say all that matters is being found in Christ, finding Him, eating and drinking in His presence because He loves us and desires to lead us. And when Christ begins to strip us down, He embraces us so fully. Then what He does is He takes our hand and leads us into this life. And everything begins to matter. See, I think that's the only way that Philippians 3.8 and Philippians 4.8 begin to make sense. Let's look at Philippians 4.8 again. The next slide kind of shows us. It says, finally, brothers, whatever's true, whatever's honorable, whatever's just, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, whatever's commendable, if there's anything excellent, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Do You see, Paul says, the world around us is rubbish compared to knowing Christ. Nothing matters except knowing Christ. But then he says, once Christ enters our life, takes hold of our lives, embraces us. Then he takes hold of our hands and he now in a new way leads us into all of life. What it means is that Christianity is so small, so singular in its focus, Jesus, but it's so expansive in its expression. It means that every part of life, whatever is excellent, whatever is commendable. Do you see how glorious and beautiful and wondrous the Christian life is? Paul, who's speaking the same message from the same place in prison, says Jesus has taken his hand. And there are two parts to this, and I have to go a little faster. 
just for time's sake, but I want to say, if you go back to that slide, that if you can, it says whatever, whatever is true, I underline, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is, you got the idea. And then at the end it says, if there is anything. Do you notice what it's saying here is we have to discern what reflects the gospel. Jesus takes us by the hand and he walks with us into the life, the created world, the relational world, the work world, our own emotional world. And we have to begin the job of discerning and sifting and sorting. See, many of us, tragically, as we begin our Christian life, are like little toddlers. Do you have little children? Little children will literally put everything in their mouth. They will put everything in their mouth. If they're in the backyard, we don't get too graphic here, but if they're in the backyard, they take whatever is on the ground. And sometimes it's kind of cute, and sometimes it's ghastly. <laughs> I mean, it's tra- this is what it means to grow up. No, 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 that's nasty, and you knock it out of their hands. This is what Jesus is doing in our life. He's saying whatever is just. He's teaching us in his presence, loved and beloved by him, to discern what are the things in this life in this world that we should celebrate, engage in. This is why we're not disengaging from the world. We're not disengaging. Nothing matters except Jesus. But, but because of Jesus, everything begins to matter. And the reality is now we can take his hand and begin to discern. And so this becomes part of our walking with Jesus, is asking and inquiring, studying his word and leading of the Holy Spirit to help us discern what is the just, what is the good, what is the excellent, and to begin to reflect. It says, think about these things. What a glorious prospect this is for us. And this means that the Christian life becomes all of life as we look to redeem all of the creation in Jesus. Because of knowing Christ, everything matters. And the last part I want to say is it's not only a discernment process, it's a delightful process. It's a delightful process. See, do you see this list here? This list tells us that these glorious things are gifts from God. So life becomes one of relinquishment and then one of enjoyment. Do you see the blessing of knowing Jesus? We let go, and then God places in our hands those things that are lasting and true and significant. We can delight in Christ's glory everywhere we go. I started making a list I added to my list this week. I just mentioned it earlier. What are the glorious things that I see? Let me tell you a quick story. C.S. Lewis, of course, one of the great thinkers of the last century. C.S. Lewis described his experience in believing God. He said one day he was in a tool shed in the back of his English house of some sort. And he stood in that tool shed and the door closed. But it was one of those old tool sheds. It had like the cracks in the wood. And he said it was a sunny day in England, a rare occurrence, but the sun poured in. And have you ever been in that moment where the sun almost has a life of itself because of the dust and particles? And he said, I looked and saw all these dust and particles. And then I stepped in. I stepped into the light and looked out to the shed. And he said, I was blinded by the radiance of the light as it came into the shed. And then he said, I turned around And I saw the light, and it illuminated the whole tool shed. And he said, I believe in Jesus because I can see the glory of God in the face of Christ. But I believe in Jesus because I can see the world 
You see, he understood that the light of God not only gives us beauty face to face, but side by side, Jesus wants us to see the world in the delight that he intends through his creation, his new creation, his restoring of all things and making them new. You see, Jesus wants us to understand and see and delight in the glory that he provides for us in his person and through all that he does as he takes our hand and leads us into life. And so, do you enjoy a good meal? Do you savor those delicious desserts? Fathers, we're probably going to go out for a great meal. Take this from the hand of God and celebrate that as a gift from Jesus. Delight in Christ's glory. But it goes more, much beyond the food. I think of the functional world in which we live. I mean, who can't celebrate a good cell phone? I'm old enough to remember not having one of those. I, I love a garage door opener. I can't get over the fact that God has provided these functional realities for us. The microwave. How about artistically? What things delight you? Music. The first two minutes or minute of the Rolling Stones song, Gimme Shelter, that guitar is fantastic. You too is coming to town in St. Louis. The music that just... But then classical music, like Claire de Lune and other artistic pieces, they take our hearts and draw us out of ourselves. These are gifts from God. We can delight in Christ's glory in those kinds of reality. I think of the relational gifts, those newborn babies that we hold, those children that I saw today running around, Jeremy, in your arms, your little daughter with that dress that she delights in. Could you not tell? That beautiful purple dress that is just so powerfully appropriate to that age and beautiful and gorgeous and something we can all delight in. And you can imagine that as she spins today out in the fellowship hall, there's a certain delight that she takes and that we take that is right and good that Jesus has given that blessing. And so this is what it means to know Christ, to rest in him, to relinquish, to discern, and then delight. And Jesus is committed to you knowing him in that way. He wants to embrace you, and he wants to enable you to delight in him in this world. When I was a child, when you live in Chicago, it's almost a rule, a law, that you have to vacation in Wisconsin. And so we go to Wisconsin in the summer months. And we would go to the lake, and at night we would have a little bonfire, and once in a while we would lay on the ground in the sandy beach with the fire, and in our sweatshirts, it would be that chilly, we would look up into the sky. And as a young boy, I remember looking up at the sky and the family of six, I'm the fifth, I'm the younger one, and the family is shouting out, oh, there's a meteor. There it goes. There's another one. And of course, there's nothing more exciting than seeing a meteor, but there's nothing more frustrating than having everybody else say, there goes one, and you have no idea where it is. And I can remember going, and of course, when you turn to look, it's too late. And I can remember sitting in my parents' lap as my parents then took my face and turned me to the sky and held my face still enough, long enough, until I could see one happen. And my heart soared. Jesus wants to take your face. He wants to look you in the face and say, I love you. And take your face and turn it toward the glory that he's prepared, not only for you, for your family, but this world. And have you delight in him and in all that he has for you. Let's pray.
Our gracious God, we thank you that it is a privilege to know you. What a wonderful, powerful, profound reality that is. So Lord, we ask your grace today that we may be found in you. Help each person here today to embrace, trust, rest, live in you. And then help each of us to know that this singular, this singular faith opens the door of life to this expansive delight that we might know you in all of our lives and in all of life. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. What a beautiful, fitting way to conclude Hugh's sermon than to come to the table. Because this table represents that offer to us to have a relationship with him, a continuing relationship with him, where he says, come, all you who are weak and are heavy laden, take my yoke upon you. And you know, in the night which our Lord was betrayed, he took bread. And he said, this bread is my body, which is broken for you so that you might learn to trust in me and delight in me and see this world from a whole different perspective. And he said, it's taking my body and breaking it for you so that you might have your sins forgiven and that you might receive this blessing. And then after the supper, Jesus took a cup and he said, this cup is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. So that as often as you eat this bread or drink this cup, you do it in remembrance of me. And through, through these, these elements, he says, I want you to remember that you have received me and you've been given new eyes to see new perception of a world that I have created for you to delight in and to enjoy. If you are one who has received Jesus into your life, this meal is for you. And God wants you to remember Him and remember what He's done. And He also wants, by His Holy Spirit, to come and reestablish, re-emphasize in your soul His care for you, His acceptance for you. His love for you, His forgiveness for you. That you are His child that He holds and cares for. He wants you to feel that. That's why He's given you elements that you would taste and feel. If you are not a follower of Jesus Christ, we want that for you, but we can't push that upon you. If you were to pray before we take this meal and to say, Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner. And I ask you to forgive me of my sins. I ask you to hold me like the father of the prodigal son. Forgive me and receive me into your family. Then this meal is for you and we want you to receive it. If you're not there yet, we don't want to push that on you. We do want you to watch as believers take this meal. You can even come forward if you want to to one of the tables on this side, by the way, we have, we have four tables available. On this side, we have grape juice and bread, as well as gluten-free bread over on this side. On this side, we have wine and we have bread, on both up where the exit sign is and down here. If you're not a believer, feel free to come up with everyone else and just come up and look 
and watch and see and smell what's happening there. Or stay in your seat. If you're a follower of Jesus, this is a meal for you to remember all that he has done for you and to re-experience his grace for you. Let's pray now and ask the Lord God himself to set aside these common elements for this sacred purpose, okay? Father in heaven, we thank you for Jesus. And we thank you that Jesus died and poured himself out and then said, I want to pour myself out upon you through my Holy Spirit. You've given us these elements, common bread, common juice, wine. We ask you now just to use these elements to reaffirm that that love for us, just like that hug that Hugh experienced from his father. And we pray, Lord, that you would allow us to believe your love and then that you would open our eyes through these elements to see your love in all the ways you've cared for us. Lord Jesus, bless this meal, we pray in your name. Amen.